Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. The League of Women Voters is known for its work to protect and expand voting rights. Perhaps less familiar is its wide-ranging promotion of social and economic justice and the health and safety of all Americans. Recently, the Minnesota League completed a study to update their position on firearms, which will be the focus of this episode of Everyday Nonviolence. I'm your host, Jaren Peterson-Dean, and it's my pleasure to welcome Marty Mix and Mary Lewis Grow, who led this effort. Marty, Mary Lewis, thanks so much for joining me today. This is an issue that is near and dear to my heart as I am a survivor of gun violence. Mary Lewis, I understand your involvement has been extensive and longstanding, including co-founding and serving as a longtime board member of Citizens for a Safer Minnesota, now known as Protect Minnesota. You also co-authored the first league position paper on firearms back in 1990. Would you talk about what brought you to this issue in the first place? I think the precipitating thing for me was in 1968, the the close succession of the political assassinations of Martin Luther King in 1968, and then just several months later, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And I was in graduate school then, and I can remember just standing stupefied talking to my fellow students and saying, how much trauma does this country have to go through before we realize we have a problem with guns? And the answer all these decades later, sadly and unfortunately, is we had to go through a whole lot more trauma. I think I circulated my first petition calling for better regulation of firearms in in 1968. But looking back on it, I also remember knowing people I knew directly who had used a firearm to commit suicide. The the son of my local church's minister committed suicide with a gun, and my aunt by marriage had a brother who had committed suicide with a gun. And of course, the story then was always they were just cleaning their rifle. So I had grown up knowing these things about traumas that had happened because of firearms. But I think, as I say, it really wasn't until 1968 that I I felt there was something terribly, terribly wrong in this country. And I got involved in a uh, an initiative petition drive in the 70s in Massachusetts when a young psychiatrist was shot and killed by a former patient. And something each decade kept taking me back to the issue. And Marty, you've been involved with the League for many years. 
but I believe your focus on gun violence is a little more recent. How did you end up co-chairing the committee? In 2019, I was state league president, and there's a process that state leagues go through every two years to look at whether they want to update program issues um, that they have positions on or um, have a new study or to drop a position. And firearms was mentioned by four local leagues, and our league was one of them in Golden Valley. And at that time, our local league was just really looking at what we thought was outdated language like long guns. We didn't realize at the time that was, <laughs> it's still a term that's used. But um, we just thought, you know, there'd been the Heller decision and we knew that there'd be changes. And we just thought it'd be a good thing to update it and to really energize members because we hadn't done a state league study in several years. So it was really to energize our state league members. And Jiren, if I can just add something, because one of the things I I have found, I mean, I the minute, not the minute, but very soon after I moved to Minnesota, I joined the League of Women Voters. And I considered my league friends to be the most politically engaged, active, savvy friends I had. But when I started going up to the state legislature around gun issues in the 80s, I wanted to take my league friends with me. I didn't want to go as a lone individual. And I was shocked and surprised and disappointed that the League of Women Voters didn't have a position on firearms at all, either at the state level or nationally. So I started going to program planning meetings, which is a wonderful grassroots process in the League of Women Voters. Every year I'd go to my local planning meeting and say, why doesn't the League of Women Voters have a position on firearms? And I got to be such a pain in the neck sending that message up every year. And I got a call one year from the state president, Joan Higginbotham, saying, Mary Lewis, if you want to see the league take a position, you need to come to the state convention and lobby against the board's recommended focus for next year and argue for why it needs to be firearms. And this was just shortly after the first school shooting in Stockton, California with an AK-47. And I was just beside myself that civilians could buy military combat weapons, cash and carry, no background check. And so when I did go to the convention and make the argument from the floor that league really, it would be so helpful to have them able to make the case to legislators that we needed more regulation, not that we wanted to ban hunting or ban hunting rifles, but to have reasonable regulations. And that passed the floor. And so that paved the way for the first study and gave us our first position. And it helped influence the taking of the national position, which was in concurrence with the Illinois study and ours. But as Marty said, that was 1990. It was before all the permits to carry permit to carry laws that passed in state after state legislature. It was before the Supreme Court completely upended its prior interpretation of what the Second Amendment meant. So I was so grateful that Marty had taken the initiative to go to state convention with the need to really update our positions this time. That certainly sounds like a testament to the value of persistence from both of you. Well, actually, it was the uh, State League Board 
that it was recommended to them based on the number of local leagues that felt that firearm studies should be updated. It wasn't me who brought it there. It's just I was insisting we do a local study. And I said, they had always said, well, we can't get people to ever chair it. And I said, I'll chair it <laughs> just to get something going. And they were a little bit like, mm. but um, then Mary Lewis called about a month later, maybe two months later after we got started and offered her help. She had been on the original study. So I thought, great. And so she was co-chair and the two of us have been working on it since 2019. Clearly, gun violence has increased dramatically in the last 30 plus years, both nationally and in Minnesota. Your study opens with the following. In 2022, the Center for Disease Control released gun mortality figures for 2020 when the U.S. population was 330 million. They reveal the highest number of annual gun deaths ever recorded with 24,292 gun suicides and 19,384 gun homicides. According to the Pew Research Center, the 2020 total represented a 14% increase from the year before and a 25% increase over the last five years. The numbers are still climbing. What other statistics are key in painting an accurate picture of the nature and magnitude of gun violence today, particularly in Minnesota? I would say the one thing we want to look at is the rate of gun violence. As bad as it is right now, we actually got a little bit higher in the mid-1990s. So I'm saying that because I think it lets us know we can take action. We can make things better because there was a large omnibus bill, a crime bill that did some major spending to have um, community policing. There was the assault weapons ban for 10 years. There was money for gun violence intervention. So a lot of things were done. And so Minnesota's a gun violence rate had gone really very low. Like in 2010, it was so low. So if you look at the last 12, 13 years, we've gone from a, a very low point to a really high point. And it's kind of focused more in certain areas. Like the one thing that surprised me was that Minneapolis has uh, only 7% of the state's population, but 44% of the homicides occur in Minneapolis. That's not the suburbs. It's just just the city itself. One of the things that is true in Minnesota and is true nationally is that the greater number of gun deaths are actually suicides. And a lot of the um, new consensus questions that we included in, in this new updated study have to do with uh, ways of preventing suicide. I mean, things like um, one of the things that we included in our new consensus study was a call for red flag laws. I think there are 19 states plus the District of Columbia that have them. But the wonderful thing is that it allows people who have a family member or of an intimate partner they think might be a danger to himself or herself or to others in the household. They then have a procedure with these laws to get a court order to get the firearms removed from the person who could do himself, herself, harm, or others. And I'll give you an example, and this was in Minnesota. I got a call a few years ago from a very good friend, and her best friend 
had divorced her husband, he'd become kind of erratic. And it turned out that they had three daughters. And the daughters knew that the father had a firearm. And they were becoming more and more and more concerned about his erratic behavior and the presence of his firearm. And this friend knew that this was an issue I'd been working on for years. And she called and she said, what can these girls do? And I said, absent an extreme risk protection order in the state of Minnesota, there's really not much they can do. I mean, they can appeal to him personally, but they really don't have any recourse that will help them through law enforcement, through the courts. So I think that is one thing that certainly we would like to lobby for, and we hope that the state legislature will provide as a safety measure for Minnesotans. Are there specific changes you personally would like to see implemented in Minnesota? I would love to see an assault weapon ban in Minnesota. I mean, we don't, uh, we may put through people through more hoops, but, but civilians can still get hold of combat weapons. I have gun owners and hunters in my family, and they all believe in universal background checks, and they don't believe any self-respecting hunter should be in the woods with more than four rounds. If you go into the woods with more than four rounds, you're not really a good sports person. But I know some people might argue for more. I know one thing that I did want to say has changed drastically since 1990 when our first study came out. And that is that that back then, the leading cause of death for children and young people um, were car accidents. There were more, I mean, for, for the general population were car accidents. And it was not the leading cause of death for children. It is now the leading cause of death for children ahead of natural causes, ahead of illness, and ahead of car accidents. So that's a big change. And more Americans die now from um, from guns than from car crashes. And we have our fair share of car crashes. I wanted to go back to what Marty mentioned about 44% of homicides were occurring in Minneapolis. Where would we say in Minnesota, where are the most suicide deaths by gun happening? In the most rural counties in the state, they're double the rates of the of Hennepin County or Ramsey County. The more rural, the less social connectedness, maybe more uh, access to firearms. There's more poverty in the rural areas. In addition, you know, there's um, there's a lot of factors. It's very complex, but definitely uh, suicide is an issue. And mental health providers are very rare in those extreme rural areas. Full disclosure, Marty, I set you up because I knew the answer to that question before I asked. <laughs> I asked because I think it's a common misconception that people assume gun violence happens in the middle of the city or it happens to other people. And we may not be recognizing that ourselves or our family members could be at a higher risk of death by suicide using a gun in those rural areas. And I think that's really important to point out. Um, Jaron, 
can I tag on to, to your comment, because I think it's very important, that if you think about the school shootings that have happened, that have just wrenched our hearts, they don't happen in the big cities. Most of them have occurred in small towns. And, you know, you think of Pearl, Mississippi, and Columbine, Colorado, and you could give example after example after example, but they don't mainly happen in the large cities. It is a phenomenon of of small towns primarily um, and suburbs. So, I mean, I when I founded and directed the Student Pledge Against Gun Violence, which is a was a national youth anti-gun violence campaign. Some I when I went to the Northfield principal and superintendent and said, how about if we adopt this program in our schools? And they said, oh, Northfield would never have a problem with with guns in schools. Northfield would never have a problem of a kid bringing a gun to school or using it. And I said, you know, I think every single community in the country is fooling themselves if they don't understand that there is no place in this country that is not a trigger pull away from a tragedy. And I think that's a really important thing to remember, whether we're talking about suicide, whether we're talking about incidents in schools, it's it's definitely the case. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, one thing that came as a surprise to me when I first started working on the study, I assumed when they talked about firearm violence, it was homicides. And I didn't realize in Minnesota back in 2018, 18, because those are the stats that I was getting in 2019, 77% of all firearm deaths were suicides in Minnesota. That has dropped, not because less people are killing themselves, because actually, but it's actually stayed steady. And then the homicide rate has gone up much higher. So we've had a spike in homicides with the suicides staying about steady. Um, so we can no longer say we're at 77%. It's, you know, around 60%, which used to be the national average, but Minnesota was always so much lower. You know, we still are one of the lowest states for homicide and suicide violence uh, in the country. So eighth or ninth lowest, but still, you know, each death, there's, there's is one death too many. And to speak to what you said, Mary Lewis, I can tell you from personal experience I never would have thought I would have been impacted by gun violence. Growing up, I never thought about it. I was somebody who, you know, put it in the other category that happens to other people, other places. And so I think part of the acceptance that has come from my own experience is accepting the fact that no one is immune and um, that that sort of innocence I once had about it or that that ability to compartmentalize it to other people, whether right or wrong, is no longer there. And um, that's a really powerful thing to digest and not something I think a lot of people understand when they haven't experienced it. So I'm glad that you that you mentioned that, that it, you know, people think it will happen other places until it happens to them. Are you able to talk about whether a direct family member was involved for you, Jaron, or is that an inappropriate question? I shared my story on one of our podcast episodes a few months ago and then invited myself to stay, and here I am. 
But briefly, my boyfriend, James, who actually would have turned 32 years old on Sunday, he was shot and killed about a mile from our house in Minneapolis. I'm so sorry to make you bring that up. You know, I've done a lot of work with Moms Demand Action in every town for gun gun safety, and I've I've worked really hard and felt it actually quite healing to use my story to try to ensure that nobody else ever feels what I have felt. So it's not that I don't like to talk about it, but today we're here to talk to you. You can always go back and listen to that episode that's on our website. So going back to the study that was just done, how and maybe why have the positions of the league changed as reflected in this updated study? One of them was to include the word universal before background checks, meaning that all transfers and sales of firearms should have a background check, whether it's at a gun show or whether it's a, through a federal firearm license dealer, which obviously the Brady law does require that for going through a, a license dealer, federal uh, license dealer. But Can I jump in there for a second, because I think this is another misconception that I hear from people, which is, yeah, you have to get a background check to buy a gun. You do if you're buying it through a, a licensed dealer. Can you clarify that a little bit? Yeah, there are people, um, if it's not something that they make their money on, supposedly, if it's not their trade and business, there is a an allowance for people to sell their guns at a gun show. Um, it might be their collections. It might be, you know, I, I don't know all of the details of how they come to these gun shows, but people buying through them don't have to have a background check. Yet one of the firearm dealers that I talked to um, in town said that he wouldn't mind going to the gun shows at all and doing background checks. He said, it's just, he feels it's important that people who have a gun, you know, have to pass a background check. For example, I could go to a federally licensed gun dealer and would be required to pass a background check in order to purchase a firearm. But this weekend, if my family and I were traveling and we ran into a gun show somewhere and we walked in, I could purchase a gun, no questions asked. Here's my money. I take the gun and leave with no background check. From an unlicensed dealer. And in fact, it has been demonstrated that in terror training manuals, they advise people that one of the best places to arm themselves is at American gun shows. And I worked very, very hard for years on Minnesota's member of members of Congress to pass the Brady Bill. And we did change a number of votes in Congress to support the Brady Bill. There was so much rejoicing. I went to the White House for the signing of the Brady Bill. People, it was like a huge, huge celebration. But what we didn't know was what an enormous, enormous loophole that law that we were rejoicing to pass had left. And private sellers and dealers at gun shows can can arm <laughs> any number of people and people know that and take advantage of it. And then something else came new upon the scene 
halfway through our study, and that is what we refer to as ghost guns. These are guns that have been made from kits, firearm kits with unfinished receivers and frames that don't have to have a serial number put in, put in them because they're not finished. And once they're finished, that would be required. So you can buy, you could buy a kit until just a recent ATF ruling that has an unfinished receiver and you know, you, it could not be traced because that serial number will always be traced to the the dealer and then the dealer who they sold it to. So that's one thing. And then the other was the 3D printed uh, firearms. At first, you know, if a firearm printed, it was 3D printed one, you fire it once, it explodes, you might hurt yourself even. And now they are actually getting better. And, you know, I guess during COVID, people started getting crafty <laughs> with their firearms. And um, so that was the other thing that in our study, we recommended that we include ghost guns, these privately made firearms that are untraceable, such as those made from unfinished frames, frames of receivers or 3D printed firearms to be defined as firearms so that they'd have to have a background check. You've talked about how you've updated some of the positions originally adopted in 1990 to reflect developments over the years. Are there any new items? The ones we have added would be enacting extreme risk protection order laws to temporarily restrict access to guns for individuals who are a danger to themselves or others, funding community-based violence intervention programs and strategies, restricting the presence of firearms from the state capitol building, enacting stronger safe firearms storage laws. Uh, We were aware that those are difficult to enforce. You can't go into people's homes and check, but it would be probably more uh, essential in the education part. Most people who have a firearm don't want their children getting hurt. So they're, they will learn safe storage methods. And then state licensing of firearm dealers. Now, Minnesota doesn't have the appearance of as much, maybe shall we say, firearm dealers that don't follow the law. If you look at Texas and Arizona, those two states are just bleeding firearms across the border to Mexico because you have a lot of rogue dealers there. And we don't have the financing of the ATF to really do the inspections of all the dealers in the country because we have more firearm dealers than we have McDonald's in the country. And then the other one was funding firearm violence research. And finally, we would oppose the passage of stand your ground laws in Minnesota. You know, we know how there's such criticism of the police using firearms and, you know, they are trained and, you know, people who are not trained will react much faster and erratically and not aim well. And, you know, there's going to be more deaths. There have been increases in in uh, gun violence after stand your ground laws are implemented. Could you speak to maybe current bills that are being proposed or being considered right now in Minnesota surrounding firearms? Extremist protection orders is one bill. Okay. Universal background checks. Uh, yes. And then I believe that there the safe storage law, there's another one there. And there is the, um, I, I'm assuming John Marty will still have a bill about restricting firearms from the state capitol building. He usually does, and it never passes, but he I haven't checked to see whether he put that one out yet. And are you 
feeling confident that those will move forward at this point? No, <laughs> I would, you know, I just think that there's enough of a gun lobby that there's pressure on some of the rural and some suburban legislators to not have any new firearm regulations. I'm I'm more hopeful. I at least, I mean, I've been in, in New Mexico for the last month and maybe there are developments I'm not aware of, but people I've talked to have expressed optimism about the background check bill and the ERPO, the ERPO laws. But there are also a lot of bills being introduced by the other side. I mean, another top priority of the gun lobby is to allow um, loaded guns on, on public university campuses. And in Texas, there were professors who gave up tenured positions on their faculties because they said, that is like taking away my academic freedom. It will be so chilling to talk about hot button topics in my classes if I know that I have students sitting there hating what I'm saying and with loaded guns in their holsters. And yet that is what the gun lobby, that's one of their top priority is getting loaded guns on campuses. Stand your ground laws, that's another one. Um, what are some of the other big agenda oh, items? But, actually, I know there is what permitless carry. Oh, yeah, right. We require training and a background check to get a permit to carry, but there are many states that have dropped those requirements. And that is another top priority of the of the gun lobby is to say that if somebody wants to carry, they shouldn't have to be trained. They shouldn't have to undergo a background check that people who want to be armed should just go around armed. I don't know, as guns are getting more lethal and more sophisticated, something's wrong with that picture. Another question I had about your study was just the connection between gun violence and race. Were you, did you find that certain groups were more impacted by gun violence than others? If you're talking homicides, younger African-American males, you know, are over 50% of the um, homicides. And yet they're only, what, 6 or 7% of the population. Actually, less than that, because these are you know, young men in just a, a certain age category. And then suicides, older white men and Native Americans have a very high suicide rate. You've mentioned a few times that the league is really advocating for effective interventions. What would be some examples of those? One thing that they've found to be very effective is when there has been a shooting, um, say, between gang members, and one of the people shot winds up in the hospital, they will send in a social worker and a lot of uh, support to talk to the victim of who's been shot about not retaliating, about breaking the cycle of revenge. Because what, what a lot of the big city hospitals see are repeat gunshot victims. They see them coming back again and again, and they want to break that cycle. But Jaren, you were talking about what community intervention programs look like. And, and I think you know, I think that that there are national conferences in which community workers 
I mean, probably every mayor's office has a prevention, violence prevention division in their office. And and the 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 shape nature of the program can change, but but there are many, many different ways to try to diffuse a very, very volatile situation before it becomes deadly. And I think that that that's what we were recommending in our study is that more be invested in prevention. I want to wrap this up today with a somewhat optimistic close. First of all, what advice would you have for people who hear this podcast and want to get involved in this issue? Uh, Write to their legislators. Tell their friends, you know, if there's some bills that they know that could actually help, um, whether it's violent violence intervention or whether it's uh, laws for extreme risk protection orders uh, or back universal background checks, these kinds of things that could actually make a difference and reduce some of the gun violence. And take your friends to go in person to the Capitol to see state representatives. I mean, it's remarkable to me how accessible um, public officials and legislators actually are. And I think it helps to find allies, find influential allies. I mean, when I first started going to the legislature and I didn't have my League of Women Voters friends to, to take with me, I called Tony Boza, who was then police chief of Minneapolis. And I said, I don't want to go to the legislature alone just as an isolated individual. Who's a police chief you know who might go with me? And he put me in touch with a police chief who later became president of the Chiefs Association in Minneapolis. And we became the dynamic duo, especially after League had a position, because then we could go in offices of members of Congress. The Brady campaign flew us to Washington so we could go talk to all of our Minnesota congressional delegation. And we went around in offices in the legislature and he'd say, I'm here representing law enforcement. And I'd say, I'm here representing the League of Women Voters, which really cares about good government and representative government. And we would get a hearing, but find, I mean, find a doctor, find an emergency room physician who who has actually operated on gunshot victims. And you'd be surprised how many even small town doctors I've had I've had Northfield doctors pull me aside and say, I operate on gunshot victims. That's our dirty little secret. But take people with you whose voice can amplify yours. Take a teacher, but 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 go and make your voice heard. I think that I, I agree with Marty. I think that's probably the most important thing you can do. What happens next in terms of the leagues and maybe your own personal involvement in the issue of gun violence? Well, I will be observing um, committee meetings and um, at some point I'll be lobbying. I am, you know, it has to be officially agreed upon by the state league convention, but we already had the vote from our local leagues I hope to be joining Marty. Um, we have to go through a training and be approved by the state office, but I hope to be doing that. I mean, for me, it'll be a return to something that I did for years and years and years. And I also 
I applaud the the current leadership of Protect Minnesota. They're trying very hard to revive what we did have in the early days, which was a coalition model. And we had mainstream groups like the League of Women Voters, which was an original member of the um, Citizens for Safer Minnesota, now Protect Minnesota Coalition. And I love I love the power of working in coalition with other individuals and other groups. And I I look forward to seeing the strengthening of of coalitions of which League will be a part. I would like to just take a minute and thank both of you for the work that you're doing. As a survivor of gun violence, I use my own experience to keep going when things get hard. And I admire and deeply appreciate people who have not been personally impacted by gun violence, but continue to fight for a safer community. So I want to thank you both deeply for the work that you're doing. And I guess as a last question, although I could talk to you for hours, how do you keep going when things are hard? I have an answer for that, but you go first, Marty. You know, when you've lived long enough, you all we've all had our ups and downs, and you know that things will get better. You know, as an example, I lost my husband when I was young. He was just 39. I was 36 when he died. You know, you, grief is a very hard thing to work through, but you just have to keep going. And as long as you have a purpose, it 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 makes your life meaningful. And I think that's the one thing is I want to live with a purpose. And there are so many things that we can have a purpose to improve our, our world around us. And so that's the only thing I can say. Thank you. Actually, I could say a lot, but you probably don't want to hear it all. <laughs> That's a great question, Sharon. And I will say that I've had moments when I see gun violence getting worse, not better, where I feel as I feel existential anguish, as if I wonder what the worth of my life has been, because I have spent decades of my life working on this issue. But one explanation in my case is that before I I turned the majority of my attention to this issue, I I was an academic and I taught Spanish language and and literature. And it probably won't surprise you to hear that I wrote my dissertation on Cervantes. And if you think of anything, when you think of Cervantes, you think of people tilting at windmills. Now, that has a sort of an absurd connotation, but it does suggest someone who keeps going in spite of many defeats. And I think I do have moments of real despair. But what I've found for me is that the more despairing I am, the only thing that pulls me up and out is to get back to work. And so the work itself and having other people there in the trenches with you, I think can be empowering and it can sustain you even when the defeats seem to mount up higher and higher and more and more discouragingly. But I think Marty and I now have found each other. We'll be in the trenches together. There are a lot of us, and I think we help keep each other going. Mary Lewis Groh and Marty Mix, 
Thank you so much for joining me today. More information about the Minnesota League of Women Voters can be found at lwvmn.org. You can see the program notes for additional links. Thank you so much for joining us on Everyday Nonviolence. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.